This week, Revlon prepares to file Chapter 11 next week. Scandinavian Airlines may file this summer. Bosch and Lom reports earnings as securities litigation continues. Reorg analyzes retail Chapter 11s. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield, distress, debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Ballon will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's deep dive, Kevin Eckhart, Senior Legal Analyst for America's Core Credit here at Reorg and friend of the podcast, joins us to discuss Jarkezi v. SEC, a recent decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals where the panel held that the SEC's use of administrative law judges to resolve securities fraud cases violates the U.S. Constitution and the implications that the decision could have on the viability of the current bankruptcy system. It's Friday, June 10th. Revlon is preparing to file Chapter 11 as soon as next week as liquidity runs low, according to sources. As of March 31st, the cosmetics retailer had $132.1 million of available liquidity, consisting of $70 million of unrestricted cash and cash equivalents, and $65.1 million in available borrowing capacity under its revolving credit facility, which had $268 million drawn at the end of the first quarter, less float about $3 million. On March 31st, Revlon said it amended its ABL and foreign ABTL to increase the aggregate borrowing base by $32 million and disclosed it may seek to raise up to $75 million in debt, equity, or other securities in 2022 to alleviate supply chain issues. On April 25th, the company said it entered into an open market sale agreement with Jefferies under which it may offer and sell shares of its common stock, having an aggregate offering price of up to $25 million. The company will use net proceeds for general corporate purposes, including additions to working capital, capital expenditures, repayment of debt, the financing of possible acquisitions, and investments of stock or repurchases. In order to meet the continued demand for the company's products, some or all of the net proceeds from the offering may be used to help alleviate supply chain disruptions. Reorg recently analyzed 34 recent Chapter 11 filings by store-based retailers in the multi-line retail, specialty retail, internet and direct marketing, textiles and apparel, and luxury goods subsectors. Using Reorg's restructuring data set included in Credit Cloud, Reorg's analysis looks at the degree to which negotiating a pre-petition restructuring support agreement affects debtors' ability to reorganize. According to Reorg's analysis, year-to-date bankruptcy filings by retailers, as measured by the consumer discretionary sector, have represented a smaller share of overall Chapter 11 filings than in years past. However, if demand and supply chain issues persist, retail Chapter 11s could accelerate. For full access to Reorg's recent analysis of Chapter 11 trends, please reach out to a Reorg representative. On June 3rd, the Valiant Securities Fraud Plaintiffs filed a brief in support of their motion asking a New Jersey federal court to return to state court their $4 billion fraudulent transfer suit related to the Bosch Health slash Bosch Lom spinoff in IPO. Securities plaintiffs assert that Bosch Health fails to establish that the action should remain in state court due to the application of the Securities Litigation Uniform Standards Act, or SLUSA. According to Bosch Health, SLUSA requires that most federal securities law claims be coordinated in a single federal court. In response to Bosch Health's argument that SLUSA permanently deprives plaintiffs of their state law rights under the New Jersey Voidable Transaction Act, or NJVTA, to have a transaction such as the Bosch Lom IPO declared as a fraudulent conveyance, the plaintiffs argue that Congress would not have intended for SLUSA to prevent injured investors from having access to state law statutes designed to ensure their claims are ultimately collectible. The plaintiffs add that nothing in SLUSA gives defendants in securities cases a green light to engage in such transactions. Plaintiffs also clarify that their state law NJVTA claim does not seek money damages and is therefore not a covered class action, to which SLUSA applies. Instead, say the plaintiffs, the state action seeks quintessential equitable relief, which SLUSA does not cover, in the form of a declaration that Bosch Health's fraudulent transfer of assets to Bosch and Lom in connection with the IPO can be avoided as necessary to satisfy damages ultimately awarded in the federal action. According to plaintiffs, this demonstrates that the federal securities case is not the proper venue for their fraudulent transfer suit. Separately, 
Bosch and Lom on Wednesday, June 8th, reported that revenue grew 1% in the first quarter to $889 million. The company said that revenue grew organically by 5% year over year. Regarding, regarding individual segment revenue, Vision Care revenue was $560 million in the first quarter of 2022, up 1% from $556 million the prior year period. The surgical segment's first quarter of 2022 revenue was $174 million, up 7.4% from $162 million the prior year period. The increase in revenue is primarily due to the higher sales of implantables, consumables, and intraocular lens sales. The ophthalmic pharmaceutical segment's first quarter revenue of $155 million decreased 4.9% from $163 million a year earlier as a result of generic erosion and a decrease in net realized pricing in the U.S., partially offset by higher sales of key promoted brands and an increase in international sales. Adjusted EBITDA, as reported by the company, totaled $170 million in the first quarter as compared to $198 million for the first quarter of 2021. The decline, according to the company, was primarily due to foreign exchange headwinds and the impact from the COVID-19 lockdown in China, partially offset by the organic revenue growth. Teneco, which in February agreed to be acquired by an affiliate of Apollo in a transaction that is expected to close in the second half of 2022, has seen its equity price fall since the merger was announced. As of the date of this recording, the company's stock trades at less than $17 per share, compared with the takeout price of about $20 per share. Since the merger was announced, Teneco's peers in the auto parts industry have reported weak results and lowered full-year guidance, due in part to cost inflation and the company's inability to pass on non-raw material inflation, such as labor, freight costs, and utilities. Teneco warned of higher inflationary cost pressures late last year, but based on first quarter results, the company appears to have passed much of these costs on to customers. Nevertheless, Teneco continues to experience a decline in its financial results, reporting higher costs of goods sold and lower EBITDA and profit margins in the first quarter of 2022. Notably, the decline in Teneco's financial results could potentially affect its pending merger with Pegasus Holdings. Reorg recently published an analysis examining Teneco's operations as a standalone company and compared its market price performance and operations with that of other auto part manufacturers. To access Reorg's full in-depth analysis of Teneco, please reach out to a Reorg representative. This week, Reorg learned that Scandinavian Airlines, or SAS, is preparing a potential Chapter 11 filing this summer and is soliciting proposals for debtor-in-possession financing. Sources said that the company is advised by Wild Gottschall's counsel and FTI Consulting as financial advisor. As of October 31st, 2021, the company had 26.77 billion Swedish krona of net financial debt, or about $2.677 billion. The air carrier of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden has been hit hard by the drop in demand caused by the coronavirus pandemic and faces fierce competition from peers. In October 2020, the company equitized some debt and raised capital by issuing new common shares, but that effort wasn't enough to put the airline on solid footing. In February, SAS said it was planning a debt for equity swap as well as a capital raise to delever its balance sheet and strengthen its liquidity position. Through this transaction, the carrier seeks to fund investment in its fleet and achieve sustainability, significantly expand its routes and frequencies, and reach a fully competitive position and gain market share in its core markets. Last month, the company said it was seeking to convert about 20 billion krona, or $2 billion, of existing debt and hybrid notes into common equity, in addition to raising no less than 9.5 billion krona in equity capital, which would likely come from new investors. Top red stories this week included... BISB appeals Arcapita District Court decision denying Shariah compliant transactions protection under bankruptcy code safe harbor provisions. Supreme Court reverses Fourth Circuit and U.S. trustee fee hike dispute finding legislation violates bankruptcy clause of U.S. Constitution. Plaintiffs defend DBMP Texas two-step fraudulent transfer suit. Urge courts ignore defendants' policy arguments. Argue fraudulent transfer laws intended to be applied broadly. Cypress Mine seeks to protect parent from tout claims linked to Immers, J&J. Now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. 
Hello all, this is Kathy Tall from Los Angeles. I'm happy to be back after taking some vacation. Here's the week ahead, primarily of court hearings. On Monday, June 13th in Maxis Energy Corporation, summary judgment oral arguments are slated in the Maxis Liquidating Trust $14 billion lawsuit against YPF and Repsol. The complaint accuses defendants of stripping value from Maxis's exploration and production businesses while seeking to abandon massive environmental liabilities. The trustees' claims include alter ego liability and state law fraudulent transfer claims. On Tuesday, June 14th, there will be an omnibus hearing in the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Texas two-step case of LTL management. Among other matters, the debtor's contested motion for approval of a qualified settlement fund for tall claims is up for hearing. The debtor has been in ongoing mediation with the official committee of tall claimants as well as other stakeholders. However, a global settlement has yet to be reached. That same day, the basic energy debtors will be in court to oppose the U.S. trustee's motion to convert the Chapter 11 cases to Chapter 7, or alternatively, to have the cases dismissed. This hearing has been continued several times. On Wednesday, June 15th, the core group banking debtors will seek confirmation of a nearly consensual Sixth Amendment plan, which was filed earlier today. The debtors have reached settlements with the UCC and other major stakeholders in the case. Only certain issues remain related to the U.S. trustee's objection focus on the plan's third-party releases. On Friday, June 17th, the Talon Energy Supply debtors will ask Judge Marvin Isker for final approval of dip financing, along with other remaining first-day relief, as well as authorization to reject retail supply contracts. The dip consists of a $1 billion new money term loan, a $300 million dip revolver, and an approximate $458 million letter of credit facility that were each approved on interim terms at the first-day hearing. The dip facility is led by Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and RBC Capital Markets. Also on Friday, June 17th, the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority will seek approval of its disclosure statement to its second amended plan of adjustment. Only one objection and two reservations of rights have been filed as of the June 8th objection deadline. That's it for me from Los Angeles on this Friday, June 10th. This month of June is LGBT Pride Month in honor of the 1969 Stonewall Uprisings. The six-day protests were in response to a raid that took place at Stonewall Inn, a gay club located in Greenwich Village in New York City, and served as a catalyst for the gay rights movement in the U.S. and around the world. Please take some time this weekend to commemorate the month-long occasion aimed at promoting equal justice and opportunity of fellow lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and other Americans, such as by attending a pride parade or festival, or joining an educational workshop to learn more about the historical and current issues faced by the LGBTQ community. Now back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, Kevin Urquhart, Senior Legal Analyst for America's Core Credit here at Reorg, in front of the podcast, joins us to discuss Jarkissi v. SEC, a recent decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals where the panel held that the SEC's use of administrative law judges to resolve securities fraud cases violates the U.S. Constitution and the implications that the decision could have on the viability of the current bankruptcy system. While it seemed that the existential crisis facing bankruptcy courts brought on by the Stern v. Marshall decision seemed to have passed with the Executive Benefits Supreme Court decision in 2014 and the Wellness decision in 2015, a constitutional crisis for non-Article III courts might be back in a big way with the recent Jarkissi v. SEC decision out of the Fifth Circuit. Kevin Eckhart, Senior Legal Analyst for America's Court Credit here at Reorg and friend of the podcast, is here to fill us in on what Jarkissi might mean, might mean for the administrative state and specifically how the decision might affect the bankruptcy court system. Kevin, welcome back to the pod. Tell us, what is Jerkacy all about? 
And is it a harbinger of dark days ahead for the viability of the bankruptcy system? <laughs> Thanks, David. Ha- happy to be here. So, so you're, you're right about, I, I think your intro is very prescient. And, and it seems like every few years or, or maybe every, every couple decades, there is a decision from the Supreme Court um, that brings, that gives bankruptcy lawyers um, the, the howling fantods. And the, this happened in Marathon, of course, in the, in the mid 80s, when the Supreme Court in an extremely confusing decision um, basically struck down the bankruptcy jurisdictional structure and they had to improvise something to replace that. Then there was, and we'll talk about this case, Grand Financiera in the late 80s that dealt with jury trials. And then you go f- zoom forward to Stern v. Marshall. And, and it seems like in most of these cases, um, the bankruptcy courts and the, the lower appellate courts have been able to elide these constitutional concerns that the bankruptcy system as constructed um, creates. Um, and, and we'll get into that in a second. And, and, and part of it is because many of these decisions are extremely divided courts. You, in Marathon, you had, I think, seven different opinions. You had four judges agreeing on three things, five judges agreeing on two things, six judges on one thing, and then two dissent. And Grand Financiera was the same way there. These decisions, um, maybe it's the the court, maybe it's bankruptcy law that <laughs> lend itself to very divided sort of uh, of ambivalent decisions from the Supreme Court. And it, it results, it gives bankruptcy courts and lower courts enough room to sort of get around um, the problems that are created by those by those cases. And what we're looking at now is an environment in which that um, that may no longer be possible uh, because of the of the anticipated ideological bent of the Supreme Court. And, and more important than any ideological bent, the fact that it's it's fairly um, there's a fairly strong six judge majority that can come out and issue very stern, <laughs> excuse the pun, decisions um, and very plain, very unequivocal decisions that bankruptcy courts might not be able to to work their way around. And that's what jerkacy is a Fifth Circuit decision, so from a lower court, but it has the feel of that kind of decision where if the Supreme Court issues this kind of decision, you know, you'd be you'd worry about the bankruptcy uh, system being in real trouble. And the bankrupt the Fifth Circuit is very similar in composition to the to the Supreme Court. So we're not talking about an outlier here. It's not outrageous to think we could have a decision like this um, from the Supreme Court. And I'm sure this one will be appealed up. So to, to explain what happened in this decision, which has been both overblown and underblown in both directions, let's let's talk about what ALJs are. And an ALJ is an administrative law judge. This is a position that was created decades ago. Um, they're created on a statutory basis. So let's step back even further. Executive agencies like the SEC are created by Congress. They pass a law, a statute, the president signs it. It creates an agency that is technically under the president's control. It's an, the agencies are executive. And then those agencies have two roles. They make rules um, through a sort of notice and comment process that's a basically legislative function. And then they adjudicate potential, investigate and adjudicate potential breaches of those rules. And that's essentially a judicial function. 
Um, and and to to exercise that judicial function, Congress again decades ago realized that it was smart to give them the ability to internally handle some rules issues and violations. And in, in the 1940s, the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA created this administrative law judge formal position. And what an ALJ is is it's an internal judge. They act just like judges. They can issue subpoenas, they take testimony, they oversee discovery, and they rule on a case um, in this agency adjudication context, all right? So their job is basically to spare the federal courts um, having to adjudicate all of these, these regulatory issues. And ironically, just as a aside, this does not mean they're lesser judges. In fact, ALJs are the only judges out there that actually have to pass a test to become a judge. They have to take an exam, they have to do an oral exam with a panel that includes a judge or a quote, real judge and an, another ALJ. It's, it's actually, and these are, often, um, these are often people who have subject matter experience in that area. So an SEC ALJ may know a whole lot more about SEC regulations and whether someone violated them than an, an Article Three district court judge who practiced at a big law firm doing mergers and acquisitions or, or you know, was, has been on the state bench or something like that. So, so these are often very, very qualified people. And the APA basically, basically creates the position and the agencies then get their own. They sort of pull ALJs to use as this internal agency decision maker. And this is everybody has always realized as something of a conflict with the American court system and how things get resolved. The presumption in the, in the old, under the old English common law, old with an E at the end, is that courts try cases. There was you know, a long history of the king making these decisions and that grew into courts. And then a separation grew between the king and the courts. The courts resolved cases, the king made policy and and created laws. So, and then of course the legislature grew off of that. So that's how our, our three branches sort of grew organically from what were originally unified powers in a king. And, and what we decided when we did the constitution is we keep that. So certain things under the constitution have to be handled by real courts. Um, and that's when I, when people say article one of the constitution, article three, an article three court is a court under the constitution that is separate from the executive, not created by Congress. Congress creates the actual individual judgeships, but the constitution creates the judiciary. So, you know, we should probably talk not about article three courts, the article three judiciary. And the presumption is that the judiciary will try, try individual cases. Um, largely because, of course, the Seventh Amendment requires jury trials, and jury trials get done in courts. So when you create a separate adjudicatory system for certain kinds of issues, civil and criminal, like the ALJ system, it is an abrogation of that default rule, whereby everything civil and criminal Goes to a art goes to the Article Three Judiciary for resolution. It's independent from the legislature, independent from the president. Here you have an an ALJ deciding issues 
the ALJ is, although there are many layers of administrative independence in there to try to ensure that the agency doesn't control them, technically they, they're the agency and they work for the, for the executive branch, for the president, and they were created by Congress, the legislative branch, and they're doing judicial things. And that makes any classically trained U.S. lawyer sort of feel a little itchy, right? It's just not, there's no jury in there. That's not a real court. It's a, a, a judge working for the agency that's been created by Congress. It starts to feel itchy. Um, so over the years, most federal courts ignored this entirely. The ALJ system became a sort of parallel judicial process, and people were pretty happy with it. There was not a challenge to this. Nobody was really interested in trying to shunt all of these administrative cases over into the Article Three judiciary. They're busy enough, um, and no one really had a problem with the delegation of con congressional authority or the use of executive employees to decide these disputes. Um, and in that vein, in that sort of permissive, don't worry about article about whether an Article Three judge decides these things. In 2010, um, as part of you know the securities law reforms that came after the um, the Great Recession of the time, the powers of SEC AL judges in particular were increased. And what Congress did, they they empowered the SEC to send pretty much any um, SEC rules enforcement case over to ALJs before the ALJs sort of handled small potatoes or, or specific kinds of, of things. And they took the big cases over to the Article III judiciary because, again, it's, it doesn't feel right. You have to come up with a justification for not going to the Article III judiciary and violating this hundreds of years old legal system that started with a, a room in the castle somewhere where nobles fought over potatoes. You, you end up, you have to qualify that. So one of the, the solutions says, well, we'll only let them handle the little stuff. Um, and in 2010, Congress said, no, they can handle everything. So Congress said, SEC, you have a choice. You can go to the Article Three courts, file an enforcement action and say, this guy committed securities fraud under securities law and have a jury because generally it's pretty well agreed securities fraud cases require a jury, or you can at your absolute discretion, go over there to your administrative law judge and have a little trial there. The other way we say that's the, we, we say that's still fine because if he loses the, the accused, then he can go ask for review from an, an article three federal court. So they say, okay, you know, no, no harm, no foul, right? You get an Article Three court eventually to consider your case. Um, that'll be really important when we talk about bankruptcy courts, right? So, and pragmatically, it's—I mean—the speed at which the ALJ can move versus an Article Three court—it's not even comparable, right? They can—they yeah, can move quickly. It's speed and expense, right? The, the ALJ is going to move much more quickly and much more speedily. He doesn't have to, again. Keep in mind these thoughts of convenience 
and efficiency and expertise, right? The idea of the ALJ is it's okay because there is an expert judge who's been grilled and trained. And hey, isn't that even better than a district court judge who used to be a criminal lawyer and now is, is up on the bench or just donate a lot of money to a campaign? Um, they are faster. They are more efficient, so less expensive. What's the problem, right? Then the, the other pillar of that, the other pillar of that is that there is eventually an Article Three court will review it. That if you are, if the SEC ALJ says, I am going to find that you violated securities laws and committed securities fraud, you can say, I disagree and take it to a federal appeals court directly. That's the way the SEC procedure works. And that's, this is true of pretty much every ALJ situation. There are ALJs all over the place. There are state ALJs. Virtually every federal agency has them. There's even like a pool of ALJs. And if an agency doesn't have its own, it can pull them in. Um, and, and EPA, the, you know, you dump stuff into a creek, they send you to the ALJ, right? There, this, this was something that for essentially 80 years, nobody really thought too much about. But in the meantime, um, the sort of originalist, limited government, I'm trying not to be political here, um, conservative judicial philosophy emerged and grew um, in reaction to this growing administrative state in part. And you had judges who were saying, who wanted to read the constitution strictly and the constitution doesn't mention any of these things. It doesn't talk about executive agencies because there was no such thing at the time. It doesn't talk about administrative law judges. It doesn't talk about um, delegating authority, Congress authority to an agency or the president having one of his employees of an agency decide cases. This is all, they, they sort of view this as all hooey and it takes power out of the elected officials' hands. It's a way for elected officials to say, we don't wanna resolve this situation, so we're gonna create an agency to create rules um, because we can't agree on laws, and then we're gonna allow them to enforce that. It's a cop-out, in other words. That, that's basically the view that the Jarkasi court takes on it, right? So let's get into the, to, to get into the decision. So Jarkasi is a right-wing radio talk show host in Houston who starts a hedge fund called Patriot something or other. You can, you know, exactly what we're talking about. He's a longtime critic of the SEC and of all administrative agencies. He's in this vein, the sort of layman, non-lawyer vein of this is not in the Constitution, so why does it exist? Legal thinking. Um, and he's accused of securities fraud basically misrepresenting who the prime broker of his fund is, misrepresenting investment controls and pumping up the value of the fund so he can collect management fees. Um, because obviously those are tied to, to the net asset value of the fund. So the SEC accuses him and they have this choice under the two 2010 statutes. They can take him to the Article Three District Court, file a civil complaint in Houston or DC or wherever or they can ask their administrative law judge to do it. And they say, well, I'll have the administrative law judge do it. Which again, they, a choice they make in, in numerous, on numerous occasions all the time. Jarkasi 
who is has, of course, more of a, a political interest in this than your typical securities fraud defendant who might want an ALJ because they don't want a jury hearing about how they may be defrauded a bunch of grandmas in their IRAs. Um, he wants to fight over this ideological point. So he brings a lawsuit in the District of D.C. to stop the ALJ proceeding, saying this is unconstitutional. And he brings a number of arguments, but the three that are really important are, I have a right to a jury trial on this. It's securities fraud, and they're sending me to an ALJ, and the Seventh Amendment says I get a jury trial. Um, that the SEC should not have the power to make the decision unif- uh, w- with sole discretion whether to go before a jury or to go with the ALJ. And um, that the whole system, uh, his, 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 it, let's say it's an appointments clause issue. His argument is that the ALJs as officers of the executive should be removable at the president's whim, um, which is an old, again, that this goes back to the constitution when the president exec, when the president or executive appoints someone, they should be able to fire that person. And putting limits on their ability to fire that person is an overreach by Congress. But let's not worry too much about the appointments clause stuff, because that's not really relevant to our bankruptcy discussion. The real issues were the jury trial and the delegation, right? The D.C. Sir, D.C. District Court says, we're not going to hear this now. Um, wait until you lose. If you lose, then you can just challenge it in the, in the appeals court and they can decide whether you're right or wrong about that. But the, we don't want to step in now. Um, he appeals that the D.C. Circuit three judge panel, one of them was Kavanaugh, say, agrees, says, bring it up later. This is not the right time. So he goes through the ALJ procedure, loses, and then he files a petition for review in the Fifth Circuit. Um, obviously, he is in Texas. We can't say he picked it entirely because it's a conservative court, but it's it's a favorite of conservative causes and, uh, and a bastion of sort of originalist thinking. And the Fifth Circuit says, no, we agree with him. The ALJ could not adjudicate this case. First point was he's entitled to a trial by jury. The court recognizes that there are certain circumstances when Congress can take jury trial rights away from people. Um, And that is, this is where it goes back to Grand Financiera. The Congress can take away jury rights from trial rights from people with respect to what are called public rights and not private rights. Private rights are your typical, um, I sue you for running me over. Torts, contracts, what the bread and butter and, and most most criminal cases, government v. Bob, these are all private rights. Public rights are basically rights created by the government. So if the government creates the right, they can have that right. They can choose to take adjudication of that right out of the jury's hands. Honestly, it's not even clear what are public rights anymore, because every decision nowadays says that private rights are involved. And the Fifth Circuit agreed. They said Congress can't take a securities fraud action that should be tried by a jury. That's a private right. And even though it was created by a congressional statute, even though the government is one of the parties, that's a private right. You can't take it away from 
from the person simply by sending things over to an administrative judge or a court of equity, which is important. Um, the second issue, the delegation issue, the judges said, look, Congress can't just give an agency total unilateral sole discretion to decide in what forum a particular kind of legal action is decided. You can't give an agency the authority to say with nothing, no standard, no sort of restrictions, this can be done in front of an ALJ and not an Article III judge. You have to have an intelligible standard. That's the, the phrase. Of course, we don't know what the intelligible standard is because Again, every case nowadays finds that there's no intelligible standard. <laughs> the de non-delegation doctrine is, is, is being completely destroyed. So we're completely blown up and delegation is being destroyed. So the, the, the essence of what was decided here is a, AL, the ALJ system is in serious trouble. First, because it can't be used to adjudicate any private rights and virtually everything is private rights, including in this case, an SEC enforcement action. So the SEC, what they should have done and in the world that the Fifth Circuit's cons conservative majority, um, as they see it, the, the ideal world, well, first of all, the SEC wouldn't exist. But if the SEC did exist, then um, the SEC would have brought this in the Article III court in front of a jury and the jury would have decided and that would have been constitutionally um, and ideologically sound. The, the second point is, and totally independent from the first, right? Either of these could, could result in, in the decision. The second point is, in their ideal world, Congress, when it creates a sort of... Uh, side tribunal to take away someone's Seventh Amendment rights. Um, it, and, and then it assigns the decision to, well, first of all, their real world is they don't want Congress to ever assign that decision. They want Congress to say in a statute, all claims related to this statute go to either Article Three, or again, they, don't, they wish the ALJs didn't exist. That's enough stuff to talk about the particular world. The point is, you have a situation where the Fifth Circuit has greatly curtailed both the power of ALJs to decide a massive number of, of legal disputes related to regulatory issues and where they have said the agency has no authority to decide on its own what those issues are that need to go to the Article III court. It, it, the, the practical implications for the SEC, which we don't really care that much about, are they're going to have to bring enforcement actions in district courts every time, um, at least until Congress gives them this intelligible standard. It's hard to imagine how they can satisfy the standard. It's just going to get rid of SEC ALJ adjudications. Now, you're supposed to ask me what this means for bankruptcy. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's out there. People are like, why is this a bankruptcy issue? Why are we talking about this? And it goes back to what I was talking about before, about the shakiness of the idea of having something decided, something that looks like a lawsuit, that looks like a classic um, civil or criminal rights issue being decided by a court, 
but decided by a court that is not an Article III constitutionally created court. Bankruptcy judges are not very different from ALJs. If you sort of peel away the layers and the robes and the bailiffs and the court seals and all that, Congress created them. They, were, they are not an Article III court. They were manufactured in the same way that the SEC was manufactured by Congress. They do not have even the limited jurisdiction that federal judges have under Article III. They also don't have jury trials. Um, they, they have no, maybe they have an ability with consent, but basically bankruptcy judges can't do jury trials. So if they're sort of like an ALJ and ALJs just got slammed and greatly limited in what they could do, you have to ask why not bankruptcy judges as well? And the Fifth Circuit decision kind of makes this analogy. They, they go back to this Grand Financiera case in 1989 where the Supreme Court said that Congress could not send um, certain causes of action, um, especially jury causes of action. Congress could not abrogate the right to a jury trial in those instances by sending them to a bankruptcy court. There was a, that was a bankruptcy court case. For, I think it was a fraudulent transfer. And the Supreme Court said, no, Congress does not have the power to take away someone's jury trial right by by creating a bankruptcy judge system to hear those issues. And that leads to Stern v. Marshall. This is the whole length of this. So it's just, it's starting to feel like how are bankruptcy judges gonna, going to talk themselves out of the same hole that ALJs are in right now? Like how do they distinguish themselves from that ALJ in Jarkissi who could not decide um, this securities fraud case, various ways, right? One of the things they would say is they have a purely adjudicative function. We look like courts. That was brought up in Jarkissi on the appointments clause issue. Majority said, we don't care. Adjudicative employees of an agency or, or creations of Congress under the same standards as the guy who's, who, guys who are making regulations, guys who are putting out press releases. So then they say, the, the most obvious, and, and I think maybe the most powerful one, um, although not still not all that powerful, distinction is the bankruptcy judges say, we're not adjudicating anything, right? So let's take, for example, um, the Johnson & Johnson, it's LTL, Texas two-step case. Got a bunch of asbestos cases against a corporation. Corporation files for bankruptcy, they propose a plan it, under which the parent company ponies up, a, let's just say a billion dollars and the tort claimants then go, the plan is confirmed, the billion is deposited, the tort claimants go fight over that and the company walks on and gets a release. Bankruptcy judges, if the, the bankruptcy judges, what they, what they uniformly say is we're, we're not, by moving those claims over to the billion dollar pool, we're not adjudicating that. We are, by, by granting non-debtor releases to the reorganized debtors who then go on with their lives and can no longer be sued, we're not adjudicating those claims that are being released. 
it's a little slim, right? I mean, it has a bit of surface appeal. You're right. The bankruptcy judge is not sitting down and saying, hey, Bob, you have a $10 million claim. Listening to the evidence, letting everybody do arguments, and then saying, Bob, you have a $10 million claim against reorganized LTM. He's not, they're not doing that. But they are saying you no longer have any claim against reorganized LTL, and now you have a claim against this fund that is capped that you now have to go assert a claim against, and you don't, you probably don't get a jury trial over there. That's like another whole issue, right? So you look at PG&E. PG&E wants a release. They want to dump $6.5 billion in cash and $6.5 billion in shares into a fund for the fire victims. Judge Montali says, I'm not adjudicating these fire claims. Even though PG&E is walking off into the sunset free of claims related to these fires, the, the trust is adjudicated. The adjudication comes later. I'm just putting a lid on the company's liability. And that's a totally different thing from adjudication. Kevin, um, and, th- and think, about, think about how central to the bankruptcy court's mission the injunctive power is. The automatic stay releases in sales, right? The, it's all about the injunction. So if that, if that injunctive power was whittled away, like as, as a, it, it, through, through something like this, you know, what, what is left? Yeah. I mean, that, that's where you get to, right? So much of bankruptcy now is based on non-debtor relief. Um, th- there's not a problem for a bankruptcy judge to adjudicate claims against the debtor. That's an important thing to keep in mind. If, if you have a claim against a debtor, not an issue. The issue is non-debtors. You are, because the, there's in-rem jurisdiction, all that. So the issue is Johnson & Johnson gets a release from the bankruptcy court um, without a jury having said the total amount of claims against it are $5 billion or less than $5 billion, the amount it leaves behind, right? So when you get rid of non, let's, let's assume a, the, a Fifth Circuit, a Supreme Court says in, let's say Purdue, Purdue goes up to the Supreme Court, right? And the judge says, the, the justices in a six to three decision or a five to four say, bankruptcy courts can't do this. These people have private rights, not public rights, claims against Johnson, uh, against the Sacklers. The Sacklers are not debtors, so bankruptcy court in REM jurisdiction. The bank, these, these claims are tort claims. They're triable by jury in 1750 in Virginia or whatever the historical analysis is. Congress, you get to the two points. Congress cannot take away these individual states or claimants' rights to continue suing the Sacklers. Um, it can't send the goes to the bankruptcy court where there's no jury if it's a private right. So we're going to say, oh, bankruptcy courts can't do um, cap liability. The bankruptcy advocate says, wait, he's, the bankruptcy court's not adjudicating these claims. It's just saying they have to go collect from that $5 billion the Sacklers left behind. Supreme Court says, what's the difference, right? You're still putting a lid on what these people can recover. You're determining the method of their recovery and the timing. We're not going to allow this, right? So let's say that happens. 
then and they say I don't know, there's a delegation problem. Can't Congress can't delegate to bankruptcy judges the right to say your claim is adjudicated here, your claim is adjudicated against a trust, um, and there's no intelligible standard. And maybe 362 is the intelligible standard or whatever. Putting that aside, Purdue goes to the Supreme Court. They say jarcusy applies just as much here. Bankruptcy courts cannot um, grant this kind of relief because it is effectively adjudicating private rights that need to be adjudicated by a, a jury trial against non-debtors. That means that essentially, if you want to reorganize a business, you got to file it. You can't do um, the LTL management maneuver. Johnson & Johnson to use bankruptcy to deal with tort claims against it and, and any claims against it. Right. Even funded debt claims can't would fall under private rights and they couldn't be sent to the bankruptcy court. If you want to do that, you got to file the company. So Purdue, in order to get the Sacklers, the releases they wanted, it would have had to have the Sacklers file for bankruptcy. Otherwise, all Judge Drain could have done in this hypothetical um, post Henry Purdue uh, Supreme Court decision, all he could have done is channeled the tort claims against Purdue, the debtor. And nobody disagrees you can do that because that's an in rem issue. Bankruptcy courts have special in rem jurisdiction. He could not have done anything with respect to the claims against the Sacklers. Practically, what that means is this management, Sacklers are not going to file. What it means is Purdue never would have filed for bankruptcy. Because the, the Sacklers controlled Purdue, at least until it filed for bankruptcy or until it was about to file. If there was no possibility of them getting releases as non-debtors, Purdue never would have been a debtor. The reason it was in Chapter 11 was to get releases for them. They controlled the company. If they weren't going to benefit from the bankruptcy, why would they do it? Um, it would press things into different forums. In let's just say LTL, right? As the Purdue decision comes down from the Supreme Court, no non-debtor releases, no non-debtor litigation injunctions, because those are jury triable issues that the bankruptcy court cannot, that Congress cannot take away from the Article Three courts and give to the bankruptcy courts. There'd be no LTL case. There'd be no Texas two-step. Johnson and Johnson would have had to file all of its entities to get releases because there are no non-debtor releases. You got to be a debtor. And they never would have filed the case uh, for just LTL or created LTL, but for the prospect of those non-debtor releases. And they're totally in control. So let's think about it in terms of a normal bankruptcy, right? You have, <clears throat> um, I'm trying to think of a good recent case where management has been accused I think TPC may qualify. Didn't they have some sponsor? They're alleging that the sponsor, the equity sponsors who controlled the board and control management. I think it's TPC, but we'll call it hypothetical pre-petition transfer. It's a, sta it's a standard structure. I mean, you're, yeah. you're describing. But, I mean, look, in every case, not just the mass tort cases, yeah. non-debtor releases are important. Mm -hmm. Not just because... Um, they get relief and enhance recoveries for unsecured creditors because they get non-debtors to pony up value in exchange for the releases. But because the people who control the company that choose to put it in bankruptcy are not going to do so if they don't benefit. 
So if you're on the board of directors of this company and it has really angry bondholders who are accusing you of breach of fiduciary duty and fraudulent transfers to the equity sponsor who put you on the board, are you going to file if that filing doesn't get you a release from all those creditor claims? Are you going to file, put the company in, allow the company to restructure its its debt with these angry creditors, company moves on, is reorganized, and then they all come sue you for breach of fiduciary duty? Yeah, you're not going to do it. You're just going to keep the company outside of bankruptcy as long as possible. And what that results in generally are cratered bankruptcies where, you know, company, if the company had filed at X point, it could have gotten dip financing. It could have gotten, um, there might've been a buyer out there. Management says, why am I going to file this company if I'm just going to get sued afterwards And the bank? What's in it for me, right? What's in bankruptcy for me? They don't file the company. And they just let it drag on and on and on. And a year later it files and it's a garbage co and has to liquidate. Well, was is that a positive benefit? I mean, I don't like the idea of mass tort debtors. It, it just, it, it, it gives me that same, I am no judicial minimalist or anti-agency zealot. But as an attorney, it makes me a little uneasy whenever a bankruptcy court says, you tort claimants, your suits against this non-debtor are now frozen for the next two or three or four years while I force everybody to mediate and put a cap on your total recoveries and force you to go through this trust process instead of being able to go to court and get a jury trial on your individual claims. That's just not how our system works. And it makes me uneasy But I have to recognize that the practical reality of bankruptcy is you need to give management and the non-debtors, so parents who own all the equity, equity sponsors, sometimes you have to give them incentives to file for bankruptcy um, or they're not going to do it. And one of those incentives is the bankruptcy court's ability to stop litigation against them temporarily with the injunctive relief at the beginning of the case and then permanently when a plan is confirmed. So if the court can't do that, um, you might lose companies, enterprises, assets that are valuable in the economy may not be reorganized and rehabilitated because management says, screw it. I'm just going to run this one, bleed this one till it's dry. Why should I file? Why should I expose myself to that? If they want to sue me, they can sue me in two years instead of you know, in bankruptcy court tomorrow or in a district court, why do it? Same issue with compensation in bankruptcy, right? You want to have, you, you want to minimize the idea of the people who ran a company into the ground getting uh, bonuses and keeps and curps and all of that, right? At the same time, if you don't give them that, they may not file the company. Malincroft's a great example. Malincroft, you had all these opioid claims, all these ACTAR claims, and the management who ran the company had been in place since it was spun off from another entity in like 2013. And they had participated in all of, in a lot of this alleged misconduct with the pricing of ACTAR going from 40 to $40,000 and the 
allegedly defrauding the government out of $650 million in Medicare and then the opioids. They were there when the company filed for bankruptcy. And then they asked for bonuses. And of course, they wanted the injunction that protected them from the ongoing litigation, same as the Sacklers. And the tort claimants said, no, it's not probably in the bankruptcy. You know, John Judge Dorsey gave them the injunction, largely gave them their bonuses. And part of you says, well, those are the guys who ran the company into the ground. Why are they getting bonuses? They're still running the company. They got a management incentive plan and they got releases. They got all these goodies, right? Why? Why did those people whose families were devastated by opioids or by Malachar, why couldn't they take it to a jury? That's America. That's the constitution, right? It's the same as why should you have some administrative ALJ deciding your fate? Why can't you take it to a jury, America? The problem is that if you don't give those Malincrot managers who are in control of the company, some, the bonuses, compensations, some incentives, the injunction, the, the non-debtor releases, they're not gonna file the company. They're just going to run it into the ground until there's not a single dollar left, mailing the keys to the lenders and walk out and defend the litigation against them. In bankruptcy, because because in bankruptcy, what we're often talking about, at least the courts are talking about, is maximizing value, not justice. And, and if you take right. away the incentives to maximize value, you have a completely different looking system. Right. And, and it's a clash between a sort of of practical concern, a more modern concern with efficiency and speed and minimizing expenses and protecting um, enterprise value mm -hmm. for creditors and for shareholders and employees. I mean, you know, we bankruptcy judges do think about employees. We we joke about it about Judge Jones giving his little lecture to management about the employees in every confirmation hearing. But, you know, people have jobs for these companies. And if the companies go out of business, they may lose their jobs. There's all kinds of economic benefits. Going concern. On, on one side. And, and the ALJ system has the same thoughts. It's, it's less expensive for everybody. It frees up the Article Three courts to do, um, you know, more of the stuff they have to do, criminal cases and that kind of thing. It... Um, is is less expensive for the government. It's it's generally less expensive for the litigants. Um, they don't have to spend as much. It's quicker, and and it's the same kind of concerns. And then on the other side is this very dogmatic sort of let justice be done though the heavens fall view of the Constitution is the Constitution, and the Fifth Circuit says it. They say it doesn't matter if it's cheaper or if it's more efficient or if it's uh, faster or if it is uh, beneficial to the economy. The constitution doesn't say any of that stuff. What the constitution says is you get a jury trial right and you can't take that away except in very, very limited circumstances that get more limited by the day. <laughs> so that's the clash here, right? And, and I'm torn. Right. Because my legal brain likes the idea of these absolutes. It is it is easier to say, 
well, why not just do what the Constitution says? And if it clogs up the Article Three courts, if securities enforcement is bungled, well, Congress got to fix it, pass a law. And, and somebody says, you know, the, the Jarkissi majority goes into this. Yeah, passing laws is tough. Sometimes it, it can't be done. So what? There's no excuse to create this whole side system to create rules instead of laws when you couldn't make laws and you couldn't get everybody together. That's not an excuse. Constitution, constitution. And then the other me says, part of me says, I mean, we talk a lot about failed bankruptcies at reorg, right? Because they're, they create more stories. They have more fights, they have more litigation, they have more contested issues, and, and investors are interested in them because the arbitrage is better, right? I used to work for a little trading desk and the, the phrase was hair equals spread. If something has hair on it, you can make more money on it. There's more risk, but there's more reward. We don't pay a whole lot of attention to the 90-day to the case where a middle market company, we, we cover confirmation, we cover the first day, but there's no litigation, there's no fights over perfection or collateral. It, it just glides through. And very often the, those successful cases, those companies go on to survive, but those might be lost if bankruptcy, no long, if bankruptcy judges no longer have the power to act in the interest of efficiency and economy and and do things on behalf of non-debtors that um, you know some court says they can't do. So, so it's it, it, you know it's a very difficult sort of approach. But the, the problem is the pra- the lack of pragmatism on the sort of originalist side. So what do we think? I mean, are we thinking that it's inevitable that um, one of the you know an existing um, third-party release situation will be the delivery system for the Jarkazi? jurisprudence into the I bankruptcy mean, into 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 bankruptcy is that is that how what we're thinking is going to happen i think it would have to because the jury trial um on claim against a third party stuff the stern v marshall stuff grand financiera langenkamp another one of those golden oldies that stuff's all gone to the supreme court and been ruled on and essentially ignored <laughs> The area that the Supreme Court has never chimed in on, which is where the rubber really meets the road, is relief for non-debtors. So you're talking about releases. You're talking about the beginning of the case injunctive relief, um, where where a bankruptcy judge says, I'm putting all the suits against the Sacklers on hold while this case goes on and on and on and on. one of those two situations, the injunctive relief can go up on appeal because typically um, injunctive relief, preliminary injunctive relief is appealable, unlike many of the things that go through bankruptcy cases. And the other way bankruptcy courts have avoided this is through equitable mootness. The plan gets confirmed, includes non-debtor releases. Somebody appeals it and the district court throws it out saying, uh, you know, it's equitably moot. If I got rid of the releases, I have to undo the whole plan. We'd have to get the stock back from the sh- note holders who were equitized, all that. So it, it's going to take two steps. It's going to take a court, knock a district court, and then a court of appeals knocking out the equitable mootness, saying, no, this is these non-debtor releases can be decided independently of the economic deal under the plan. We've seen that. Um 
Purdue is not effective yet, so it's not the example, but Asina was. And Judge Novak, the district court judge in Virginia, said very clearly equitable mootness doesn't apply to this. Now, it was a case where the non-debtor releases were not, it wasn't a Purdue, a mass tort case that would that was not filed solely to get releases, but they were management releases of the kind we're talking about. So Asina is really the prime case for this, right? It is a case where it's not a big mass tort case. It's claims against third parties by securities plaintiffs. They want to sue the, ma- the officers and directors of the company for securities fraud. And the confirmation order says, no, they can't do that. There's a release. Um, they appeal that. And Judge Novak says, uh, the, the whole deal over there, the restructuring deal, that's separate from the releases issue. He then remanded it down and the debtors agreed to go forward with the plan without the releases. Um, so they, that was a case where uh, sort of contradicts my fear that, ma- that unless management gets releases, they won't file and get a plan confirmed. In that case, they did. Although, of course, they, they did file it when they thought they were going to get releases. And so they were kind of didn't have a choice at the end to just go ahead without the releases. But then you have to have a, a court of appeals. Let's say that goes to the Fourth Circuit. It won't because it'll never be resolved. So let's say Purdue goes to the Second Circuit. Uh, again, Purdue's not a good example because they're not effective. You'd have but to have a case that went effective. You'd have to have the circuit court also say that it's not equitably moot and then get it to the Supreme Court. Um, and the equitable mootness has been taken a few hits lately. So that's entirely possible. So, uh, you know, we're, we're always looking out. Where's the case where confirmed non-debtor releases, plan goes effective, equitable mootness doesn't apply, District court judge says you can't do this because bankruptcy courts can't do this. Citing jarcusy goes up to the circuit court, goes up to the Supreme yeah. Court. Maybe LTL may be the best case because they have appealed the injunction, the litigation injunction at the beginning of the case. So there's no equitable mootness issue. So the Supreme Court could say you could use jarcusy or, or the, the philosophy there and say, we don't think that a bankruptcy court can even enjoin all these claims and deprive these people of a jury trial right, even temporarily, we think it lacks the authority to do that in the same way that an ALJ couldn't, couldn't issue some injunction that prevents people from going forward on jury trials on non-parties. So it's, a, it's inevitable that we're going to see it, but you know, it's, it's hard to tell. The, with the way the Supreme Court is right if they have even a shred of ideological consistency, that's an open question. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to see how they continue to countenance bankruptcy courts doing these things outside of Article Three, outside of the jury trial rights with non-debtors. It's impossible for me to see how someone who ideologically has a problem with ALJs doing this have, being okay with bankruptcy judges doing this, right? Now that doesn't mean they won't find a way to say it's okay bankruptcy judges do this because not everybody's ideologically consistent. <laughs> they may think, well, this is, you know, this is an area where they could come up with some distinction, but stepping back from the unelect, from their position of unelected officials and non-Article three judges without juries should not be deciding the rights of individual free private citizens, 
how can you not include bankruptcy judges in that? Right? Do, you th- do you think that in the Fifth Circuit, a bankruptcy judge, when faced, like, could this argument be made in the Fifth Circuit in a bankruptcy oh, court yeah. where oh, someone says it. that the you know the Fifth Circuit has said that you bankruptcy judge can't do this? Would the bankruptcy judge have to consider that? I mean, it's not it's not gone to the Supreme Court. Part of the trick is in the Fifth Circuit, there are no non-debtor releases, no non-consensual non-debtor releases old case. However, they get around it with various workarounds. Basically, they manufacture consent um, through opt-outs and all that. So it's a little different. But I mean, I would be arguing if I were on the Purdue appeal, right? If I'm a lawyer going to do oral argument on the Purdue appeal, I think it's already happened. I would point out this case. I'd say, Your Honor, this is, if an ALJ can't do this, can't adjudicate private rights um, without a jury trial. How can a bankruptcy judge do it? How does this not apply equally? This court cited Grand Financiera, which dealt with bankruptcy judge. I mean, your honor, it's right there in front of you. The connection is obvious. And a judge who has that, um, who, who adheres to that ideology would have to really scramble to find a justification. Maybe it is Oh, I don't know. The justification is not in that these guys wear robes and the ALJ guy wears a suit, right? And that's how bankruptcy judges seem to act. Bankruptcy judges think of themselves like Article Three judges, and it's part of the problem. They don't appreciate the limitations of their position, um, mostly because those limitations have been disregarded for so long that nobody pays attention to them either. But I don't get the impression that bankruptcy judges are thinking real hard about this, that they're reading jargacy and going, hmm, this, this is us. That's us. <laughs> and maybe they should. And, you know, what I'd like to see is that they, you know, pull it back a little bit. Johnson and Johnson, LTL. Come on. I mean, that's pull it back a little bit. Maybe, you know, Purdue, maybe, or just ordinary case. Management releases, equity sponsor releases back what they used to do 15 years ago. All right. Take us back 15 years. Don't take us back 70 years or 80 years. Um, That would be nice. But they don't seem to show an inclination to do that, the big bankruptcy judges. Um, So, you know, they, they still just say, well, expediency, efficiency trumps all. And reorganization trumps everything. The goal of getting a plan confirmed is is everything. And you do whatever it takes to get that done. I mean, we were focused here on the bankruptcy court system, but the implications obviously go beyond. You have the entire magistrate system, which allows the district court system to function. If that if if the magistrate system this was part of the Stern v. Marshall, you know, complex of you know issues there too, and they survived as well. Um but yeah. in this case, if, if they if they were stripped of their ability to do what they do, the, the Article three courts, at least the trial courts, you know, it'd be it'd be hard. It'd be hard. It'd be, yeah, I mean, they'd be hard pressed to function without the magistrate system. I, I mean, it's, it's a little field, obviously. The difference but. with the magistrates is, is they're not doing anything like what bankruptcy judges do. They're not doing what, anything like what ALJs do. They're, they're doing discovery disputes. They're doing. Um, they're doing the sort of low level stuff that, you know, ALJs, maybe conservatives 
the, the conservative position would take as a compromise rather than getting rid of the whole ALJ system. We're okay with ALJs acting as, you know, overseeing discovery like special masters. Mm-hmm. We're okay with that. Um, magistrates are not out there stopping thousands of tort claims against a non-debtor in their tracks, you know, days, weeks, months before a trial in a real court and saying, no, you're going to sit there and wait and maybe get your claim um, assigned to some trust with a cap on it. They're not doing anything like that. Hell, ALJs aren't doing anything like that. So, I mean, but yeah, this idea, the, the perfect world of the originalist judicial system, it's hard to fathom how it functions today, right? If let's say we just have Article Three courts, there's no magistrates, there's no ALJs, there's no bankruptcy courts. I mean, how, how do they do it? It, it just—it's a—it would require a total rethinking of federal law enforcement, federal, um, dis, you know, civil lawsuit resolution. It would—it would, and maybe this is the goal: force a lot of this back on the states. And maybe we go back to having <laughs> assignments. I talked about this in the column last week. You, you have assignments for the benefit of creditors, state law liquidation, and they're a nightmare and they're fraught with abuse. But maybe that's their goal is people aren't going to file lawsuits in federal court because they know they're not going to get resolved for 10 years. Um, they're going to turn into jarndice v. jarndice. And so you file in state court. Maybe that's their goal is to say, yeah, leave it to the states. If people, if the if the district courts are so clogged, no one can get their lawsuits resolved. If they're so clogged that criminal trials can't come to trial for five years, nobody will bring any criminal cases. Nobody will bring any federal criminal cases. Nobody will file any federal civil cases. And the states will get to resolve everything. Maybe, maybe that's the idea. I, I I there's know. a grand master plan. but I, I think the plan is, look, it's all part of a sort of, rethinking of the size of the federal government since the 1930s. This, it, the SEC touches a nerve with the originalists because it was a Roosevelt, it was a New Deal thing. So, um, and a lot of these agencies were. And um, the conservatives think that was wrong, that, that the New Deal and then the, the sort of expansion of the great society were bad ideas and never should have happened. And we should have the federal system that we had before with, uh, you know, minimal federal government. And that includes the judiciary. And if the judiciary can't handle that, well, tough, you know, that's, if it hurts, um, see, it's again, the lack of pragmatism. It used to be, you could count on these sort of conservative justices to be pro-business, but striking down the bankruptcy codes ability for corporations to get non-debtor releases would be an anti-business move. And yet increasingly the dogmatism of the originalist approach is beginning to trump those kind of concerns. It's become a sort of, of ideology beyond the goal. The goal is no longer to strip away regulation from corporations or individuals. It is to, return things to a certain period and you know that wasn't the case with stern when stern v marshall was decided or marathon 
And that's why he had all the ambivalence. You had a lot of judges struggling to weigh the ideology against the practical benefits of this system and letting bankruptcy judges do these things. And I'm not sure that's going to happen next time. I'm not sure there's going to be a whole lot of balancing. If you look at the Jarkasi decision, there's no balancing going on there. No one's saying, well, you know, maybe this is best for defendants too, right? It's cheaper. It's less expensive. A, a company, let's say you're, you, run a, you run a brokerage or a hedge fund. You're accused of some low level $10 million. You got a $50 billion hedge fund. You're accused of some $10 million SEC um, issue, some failure to disclose. And the SEC says, we're going to enforce it against you. Do you want that to go forward in an Article Three court? No. It's easier for you to go to the ALJ, have them decide it, pay your fine or settle it and get out. You could spend $10 million in the Article Three courts just on legal fees. You, you know, it's not like these ALJs and these agencies are out there trying to shut everybody down. There are circumstances where obviously Johnson & Johnson slash LTL have decided the bankruptcy administrative system is a better, more efficient way to adjudicate these things. Um, it's not necessarily a pro-corporate stance or a stance that the, the, an enlightened chamber of commerce would take to get rid of all these agency tribunals. This is something more. It is an ideological um, perspective that was not really present even 25 years ago, at, at the very least in bankruptcy jurisprudence. Um, so we'll see. It'll be interesting. I okay. mean, with Judge Novak, you had a decision in Asina knocking out those releases mm -hmm. that was extremely ideological. That was saying, what are these bankruptcy guys doing? These two judges, they're out of control. I'm taking their cases away. Whereas you had an old school decision in Purdue that was, Let's think about this. Let's weigh these, you know, Judge McMahon's decision was very measured. And, you know, are you going to get that kind of measurement out of a very conservative circuit court or Supreme Court? I don't know. All right. Well, Kevin, you know, it's been a journey. <laughs> and we're <laughs> Thanks nowhere, for taking the time. Thanks for inviting me on, David. We are nowhere near the end of that journey. You'll be back to talk about the latest developments. Yeah, we'll have to talk after the Purdue Second Circuit. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get that soon. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, enlightening us once again. <laughs> no problem. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Follow all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.